0: So every week after I finish teaching my passage in Judges, I say to myself, that was a weird passage of scripture, but next week is going to be better. And then I open up the next chapter and nope, not this week. And next week isn't looking hopeful either. There's <laughs> a lot of weird, a lot of weird stories, a lot of weird passages in the book of Judges. Uh, For the last few weeks, we've been looking at Gideon's life, we've been looking at Gideon's ministry, his failures, and eventually his death. And this week, as we move into chapter 9, Gideon is dead and buried, but his family saga continues as we look at this tragic interaction between his sons. And this is a long chapter, and we're going to move through it quickly. Some of it we're just going to summarize. And we're going to be looking at this, sort of this meta-narrative, this, this, big, this big picture. And then we're going to kind of circle back at the end and see what applications we can find here. So you may remember that after Gideon's great victory over the Midianites, the people wanted to crown Gideon king. Remember, it says they wanted to start a new royal dynasty, right? They wanted Gideon to be the head of it, and then they wanted his sons and his grandsons to come after him. And remember, Gideon rightly says, no, I don't want to be your king. The Lord will rule over you. And we saw that he he gave the right answer with his mouth, but his actions betrayed his heart, didn't they? Right, Gideon, he he declines the throne. Nonetheless, a couple verses later, we find Gideon, while denying that he's king, he's acting like a king, isn't he? He's living like a king. He's taking tribute from the people like a king. He's acquiring wives like a king. In fact, we learn that he had many wives. So many wives that he has 70 sons. And if simple math plays out, he probably had at least as many daughters, right? 140 kids. He was a prolific man. And, you know, I was just kind of thinking about that. Say, say each wife, on average, and I'm just picking a number, had five kids. That's 28 wives the man had. That's a lot. You know, I've been married a total of 27 years to three different women. Consequently, they're all in the same body. But uh, <laughs> a little joke. <laughs> I'm glad my wife's not here today. Show Some of you guys just got that. <laughs> Those of you guys have been married for a while. You got it right away. <laughs> so Gideon has 28 wives. I mean, I don't know if it's exactly, 20, but he's got a lot of wives. And so that's where we leave off in chapter nine. Now Abimelech... And remember, Abimelech was the son, not even one of his sons. It was a a son of a concubine. It says, now Abimelech, the son of Jerubel, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So remember, Jeroboam was Gideon's nickname. So when we're talking about Jeroboam, we're talking about Gideon. Remember, after Gideon went into into Orpha and he pulled down the altar of Baal, remember, and there's that whole brouhaha with the people wanted to kill him and his dad stepped up. After that, he got this nickname, Jeroboam, Baal will contend. And so, so... We find here that this Abimelech, that he was not just one of the, the, the sons of the 70. As I said, he was, he was the son of a concubine. He was the son of a servant girl from Shechem. And remember we saw last time that Abimelech, it means, anybody remember what it means? My father, the king. Even though Gideon didn't want to be king, he names his son, my father, the king. So Abimelech, he goes home to Shechem and he says to his family, his extended family on his mother's side, he says, listen, guys, would you rather have Gideon's 70 sons rule over you or me, one of your own people? He says, look, I'm, I'm your flesh, I'm your blood. We're family here. And so he kind of sets up this contrast. Now, as we get into the chapter, it's been said that no man's life is completely worthless. They could at least be an example of what not to do. And that's what we find here with Abimelech. Right? He was a power-hungry, vengeful, godless, merciless, cruel man, as we will see. But he was family. In verse 3, it says, and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. And they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. So the people, they kind of talk it over, and they say, yeah, he's our brother. I guess it would be better for a relative to rule over us than 70 guys that we're not even related to. And so they give Abimelech 70 pieces of silver out of the treasury of the temple of Belbarith. Now remember last week we saw the introduction of this character, Belbarith. Remember, as soon as Gideon died, the people immediately went back to idolatry. They immediately went back and they pulled out their idols. And it said in the last chapter in verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-barith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord, their God who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. So we see that the people, they forgot about God and they go back to Baal Barith. And remember we saw that Baal Barith, it means Baal of the covenant. And it was sort of a almost a blasphemous title because remember the Lord in the Old Testament is referred to as the Lord of the Covenant or the God of the Covenant. And so they were taking God and replacing him with this false God and attributing God's titles to him. So the people, they go to the temple of Belbarith, this false God, and they take out money from the treasury and they give it to Abimelech. And Abimelech, Abimelech, he takes the money and he basically goes out and he hires a mercenary force. It says he hires a bunch of worthless and reckless fellows. What a, what a definition, huh? What a description. A bunch of worthless and reckless fellows. And he went to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerobel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerobel, was left, for he hid himself. So you see the picture here. Abimelech and his little squad of mercenaries, they gather up all of the sons of, uh, of, Joab, or the sons of Gideon here in Orpha, and they take him to this central location in town, this, this central stone, and he murders them all. All 70 of the brothers except one, it notes, who is the baby of the family. And the the implication of the grammar here is that he killed them all one by one. That he executed each one of them individually. What kind of a man would do something like this? What kind of deep-seated hatred must he have here? To kill all of his brothers one by one. Was it because he was an illegitimate son? Was there some other reason why he resented his brothers? You know, we don't know for sure, but he murders each one of them except for Jotham, the youngest. He slips away in the midst of all the chaos and he hides himself. And this is a, this is an ugly scene. We have this picture of, of mass murder here and, and no one cared. In fact, not only did they not care, they condoned it, right? The people of Shechem, not only did they condone it, but they funded it. They paid for it to happen. We find these people were anesthetized to, to sin, right? They were, their, their hearts were so hard. That they didn't even feel their consciences being pricked by by mass murder. And, And that's what happens when we give ourselves over to sin. Our hearts grow harder and harder and harder. The calluses on our hearts grow thicker and thicker and thicker. And we can no longer feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit. We can no longer feel that that prick in our consciences. And I I think that there's a point where us as believers, you know, we we can start moving in that direction and we have to stop and we have to ask the Lord to to just tear off those calluses on our hearts. And that can be painful, right? Right, tearing off a, a, a callus is painful. And what happens when you tear off the callus? What do you notice about the skin underneath? It's sensitive, right? And that's what so many of us need. We need those calluses to be torn off so that we can become sensitive again to the leading and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We need to, we need to soften our hearts so that we can detect the voice of God. And all the leaders of Shechem, verse 6, came together, and all Beth Melo, And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So the men of Shechem they celebrate this event. They all gather together. The men of Shechem in this place called Beth Milo. Now Beth Milo, it seems like it was probably a sort of a, a, an area in Shechem, sort of the upper class area where the, where the leaders and the rulers lived. And it says that they crown Abimelech king. And we get a little interesting tidbit of information here. It says that this took place at the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Now, this oak at the pillar of Shechem was a, a very significant location. We first see it mentioned when Abraham traveled to Haran. Later on, Jacob met Esau there when he was on his way back home from Padan Aram. This is where Jacob's sons go when they avenge the, the rape of their sister Dinah. This is where Joshua is when he gives his final speech to the people of Israel before he passes away. Remember Joshua in Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 19, he he stands up before the people and we're not going to read the whole text for the sake of time, but he gives this message to the people encouraging them to, to commit their hearts to the Lord, to seek after God and to follow him. And the people all say, yes, we will, we will serve God. We will follow God. And it says that Joshua builds a, a pillar of witness there. And that's what it's talking about here. This is the same place where, where Joshua built this pillar of reminder. And Joshua tells the people, listen, this pillar, it's a witness against you if you deal with the Lord falsely. And it's in this very place where these worshipers of baal are breaking their covenant with God. It's the very place where Joshua and the people made this covenant that the people stand and break this covenant before God. And I think there's some, some, some significance and some meaning there to that. So we find them here, and they're, and they're crowning Abimelech king. And before we go on, I think it's worth noting that Abimelech wasn't the king of Israel, right? He was the king of that little town, or maybe the couple surrounding towns. He was the king of a couple cities. And really what he was well, he was a little, a little many despot, right? He was a little warlord. Verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And then he gives us this little little fable. He says, the trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Jotham, by the way, his name means Yahweh is truthful. So Jotham the one son who lived, he sees what's transpiring, and he's not having any of it, right? He's not going to just let this thing happen. So he goes on this hilltop where everybody can see him, and he says to the leaders of Shechem, he says, listen, hear what I have to say, and maybe God will hear you. And then he unfolds this little parable here. He says, look, once there were trees, that were looking for a king to rule over them. They went to the olive tree and say, hey, olive tree, will you be our king? And the olive tree says, well, I'm pretty set up here. Right? I have honor where I am. Why have to go rule over you? So next, the trees go to the fig tree and they say, fig tree, be our king. And the fig tree says, well, I've got a pretty sweet deal here. I'm not really interested in ruling over you. So next they go to the grapevine. And this isn't even a tree, right? This is just a vine. And they say, come rule over us. And the grapevine says, shall I leave my wine? So says, I'm already making people happy where I am. So finally the trees, they go to a bramble, a thorn bush, a sticker bush, a blackberry bush. And they say, you be our king. Nobody else wants to rule over us. And the bramble bush says, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. He says, if you really want me to, I'll be your king. Come take refuge in my shade. A sticker bush doesn't really provide a lot of shade, does it? On a nice hot day, when you want to relax, you don't go sit underneath the blackberry bush right? It's just a prickly vine, right? This is intended to be irony in case you missed that. These trees, they say to this little briar, this little tumbleweed, you know, be our king. And he says, okay, I'll provide shade for you. He can't provide shade for anything, let alone a whole grove of trees. But the briar says, look, if you're not acting in good faith towards me, fire is going to come out and consume you. John Corson says this. He says that the main point that Jotham is making is that only worthless people seek to have authority over other people's lives. Now we just finished the midterms. I don't know what that says about that. But worthy individuals are too busy doing what God has called them to do, to want to seek after places of authority. Verse 16, now therefore, if you acted in good faith and with integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam in his house and have done to him all his deeds deserved, he says, for our father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, in verse 18, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he was your relative. So he says, Look, if you've acted in good faith and in integrity, well, of course they hadn't acted in good faith with integrity, right? They had funded a a hit squad to go take out his brothers. At Jotham, he was there. He, He just saw all of his brothers get murdered one by one. He knew that they hadn't dealt well with Gideon's family. He knew that they hadn't repaid Gideon for all the good that he had done for the people. He says, look, you guys rose up and you killed Gideon's 70 sons. You killed my 69 brothers. And you made this this son of a servant girl king. He says in verse 19 again, but if you acted in good faith and with integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, he says, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So Abimelech, or, um, Jotham again says, look, if you acted with integrity, if you acted in good faith, rejoice, be happy, you got a new king. He says, but if you act with bad intentions, let fire come out from Abimelech and let him consume you and let you consume him as well. Let he, let, may he destroy you and may you destroy him. And then Jotham goes into hiding and we never hear from Jotham again. Now, he's kind of an interesting character, isn't he? I wish that we knew a little more about him. Scripture isn't clear, and we don't know if he was a man of God or if he wasn't, but it does seem like at this point God is speaking through him here. God is issuing a a prophetic warning to the people. Verse 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerobel might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, And they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. So presumably the Lord sends this warning to the people of Shechem. But there was no change of heart, right? The warning of the Lord through Jotham, it it fell on deaf ears. It it fell on the ears of hard-hearted, God-hating, rebellious men. And guess what happened? Nothing. For three years, nothing happened after Jotham pronounces this impending judgment. The people had been warned and no judgment came. And the people were probably like, well, I guess it wasn't really that big of a deal. Old Jotham, I, 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 he, maybe he was crazy. Maybe he had a little too much of the wine to drink that day. Right the people look at the Lord's long suffering and they interpret it as him not caring about the actions that they're taking but after 3 years the Lord begins to bring judgment home to these guys it says that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and these men and I don't know what that means I don't know if that means the Lord sent a, a, commanded a demon to go and, and cause trouble. He's poking him with the pitchfork or if it's just implying that, that he caused there to be bad blood, you know, bad intentions, ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. But regardless, whatever happened, the men of Shechem, they turn on Abimelech and it says that they dealt treacherously with him. And really, should Abimelech have expected anything different? Right? They, they, they're dealing with Abimelech the same way that they dealt with his brothers, right? right? These are not trustworthy guys. And verse 24 informs us that the Lord uses this evil spirit so that both of these parties would bring God's judgment on each other for the massacre, massacre that they took part of there in Orpha with Gideon's 70 sons. And verse 25 says that the men of Shechem laid in wait and they ambushed Abimelech's men in the mountains. They're disrupting the trade routes here. They're robbing all the people who pass by. And then we sort of see a little shift in the narrative starting in verse 26. And it says, Gael, the son of Ebed, Moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. So we see this, this new character coming on the scene. This guy, El. You know, he moves into town. He's sort of the, 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 the Johnny come lately. The new kid on the block here. And it says that the leaders of Shechem, they put their, their confidence in him. They, they, they trust in him. And Verse 27. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. Gael, the son of Ebed said, who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Ham or the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? What would this people, would that this people were under my hand? Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So you see what's happening here. These guys, they make some wine, they have a little party, they get sauced up. And what happens when they're sauced up? They start bad-mouthing this king that they had anointed. They say, who is this Abimelech that we should serve him? You can almost imagine the slur in their voice here, right? He's Gideon's son. This, This isn't our guy. And Gael, he gets a little bit of liquid courage throwing through his veins here, right? He's a little bit drunk. And he says, man, if I were in charge... If you guys were under my hand, I would raise up an army and we would march against Abimelech. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. So word gets back to Abimelech. He says, look, these guys are are fomenting insurrection. There's this treasonous talk going on. His officer, Zebul, he says, look, this guy, this Gael, he's saying that he wants to raise up an army and overthrow you. He says, you guys need to go out by night, and you need to set up an ambush against them. So verse 34, Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night, and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. So you can kind of see the scene here. Abimelech, he divides his soldiers into four companies, and he strategically places them around the city in the dark of night. And morning starts to dawn, and, and this Gael character, he moves out to the city gate. Now remember, in those days, it was the custom that the elders of the city, the leaders in the community, they would often sit at the city gates to, to conduct business. The city gates were, were sort of the town hall. And so when Gael goes out there in the morning and sits by the city gate, he's essentially sort of setting himself in this place of leadership among the people. And as he's standing there, these four companies of men start to move in. And when Gael saw the people, verse 36, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the mountains. And Zebul said to him, you mistake the shadow of mountains for men. So Gael says, look, there's troops coming down. There's people coming. And remember Zebul here, he's, he's a double agent, right? He's been passag- passing all these secrets. And Zebul says, no way. That's just a bunch of trees blowing in the wind. Right? This is the shadow coming off the mountains. He says, the light is playing tricks with your eyes. And Gael spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the center of the land and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. And Gael says, no, look, they're coming. They're walking right down the path. They're right in front of you, Zebul. Can't you see it? And then Zebul said to him, where is your mouth now? You who said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are these not the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. I like what he says there. Where is your mouth now? He says, Look, you were all talk when you were drunk. Yo, we're going to raise up an army. We're going to over. Well, where's your mouth now? There he is. Go take care of him. Go out and fight Abimelech. Here's your chance. By all means, proceed. And Gail went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him. And he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zabel drove drove out Gael and his relatives, so they could not dwell at Shechem. So Abimelech, he finds victory here. He drives out Gael and his family, and he wounds and kills many of the soldiers. Now, verses 42 through 45, we see the forces of Abimelech, they move in and they begin to kill the people of Shechem, not just the leaders and the soldiers. They're killing the farmers that are out in the fields. They're destroying their crops. They're they're beginning to tear down the city. And it says in verse 46, then all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it. They entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith. So the leaders get wind of what's happening, and they flee to the stronghold of their god Baal-barith. And Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zelmon. He and the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe with his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them. So the people of the Tower of Shechem also died. About a thousand men and women. So Abimelech, he has all the people, all the leaders... all all the upper class people trapped in this stronghold. And what does he do? He and his guys, they go get a bunch of firewood and they stack it around the tower and they light it on fire. They burn down the temple of Baal-bereth with a thousand people inside. And I'm not saying whether or not the people deserved it, but this man, Abimelech, was a bloodthirsty man, consumed with vengeance. And let me just say this: These people, when they saw the enemy approach, they fled to their tower. They fled to their stronghold. But they put their faith in the wrong tower, didn't they? It wasn't the right stronghold. Psalm 61-3: 60, David is speaking. He says, for you, God, have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. The people failed to trust in the Lord. Instead, they trusted in their own strength. And what happened? They were consumed. They were destroyed. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the women, men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So it's the same situation, right? We see the same scenario playing out again. The people flee into what they think is a safe refuge. And Abimelech, he sees the people cornered, and so he moves in with fire again, and he's going to burn down the tower with all the people in it. Verse 53. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Okay. Right? As Abimelech moves in for the kill, right? He's ready to destroy this city as well. Some random unnamed lady, she takes a millstone. It says an upper millstone, right? This was a stone that was roughly the size of a cinder block, and it was used to help grind, you know, wheat into flour to make bread. She takes it and she just throws it over the edge, and it just happens to hit Abimelech in the head and it crushes his skull. This is interesting to me a little bit. It's almost as if the Lord worked this out on purpose, isn't it? Abimelech took his 70 brothers to a stone and he executes them there. And now what happens? He himself is killed with a stone. It's almost as if you reap what you sow, huh? Sort of a a, a poetic justice here for this murderous false king. Verse 54. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man, And his young man thrust him through, and he died. So Abimelech, he gets hit on the head. His skull is crushed, but he doesn't die instantly. So he calls his armor bearer over. He says, quick, take your sword and run me through. I don't want anybody to say, oh, that Abimelech, he was killed by a woman. But he was killed by a woman, right? She struck the mortal blow. Sort of a a weird, quirky little ending to this story. Right? And so they run him through with the sword and end it more quickly. Now look at verse 55. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone went home. It seems a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? So there's this siege of the tower. The enemy forces are moving in. Things are looking bleak. There's torches. There's fire. This, this lady throws a rock and dramatically kills the bad guy. And then, up, oh, party's over. That's a wrap. Let's call it a day. And everybody goes home. But look at verse 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father, And killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerobel. So the end of the story here, it notes that the people got the judgment that they deserved. God returned Abimelech's evil on him and he returned the evil of the men of Shechem on them as well. Sort of an odd passage though, isn't it? Right? What, do we, what do we do with this? What are, the, what are the life applications for us? Don't stand too close when besieging a tower? Oh, got that one. Don't murder your whole family or trust the people who paid for it? Okay, check. It's, it's an odd chapter. But there's a couple things that I that I think that we can extract from this, a couple points that we can apply. First, I want to note that God gave the people of Shechem time to repent. He gave them time to change their ways. And I think that's significant. I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Remember the Lord, he's talking with Abram about the promised land. And he says, look, I've given this land to you and your descendants forever. This is your eternal inheritance. But the Lord says, you got to wait for a little while. I'm not going to give it to it yet. And remember what he says? Because the sins of the Amorites was not yet complete. Essentially, he's saying, look, The people who inhabit the land, they're on the path of judgment. But I'm giving them a little more time to change their ways before I bring judgment. And it reminds me of 2 Peter 3, verse 8. And I talk about this verse a lot. But it's because I believe that this is such a a powerful, such a clear reflection of the heart of God. Peter says... The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says, look, don't think that because you haven't been judged, that judgment isn't coming. The reason why you haven't been judged is because God, is merciful, and he's kind, and he's showing you patience. He's giving you time to repent of your sins because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He desires that, that all would come to a place of repentance. Right? He gives these people three years to turn from their sins before he brings judgment on them. But eventually, when they refuse to repent, He did bring judgment, didn't he? The people and Abimelech eventually harvested the seeds that they had sown. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul says, listen, just like if you plant corn seeds, you're not going to get carrots. Right? If you plant corn seeds, you're going to reap corn. If you plant wheat, you're going to harvest wheat. He says the same thing is true for us spiritually. If you sow seeds of sin, guess what you're going to harvest? The harvest of sin. The harvest of corruption, he says. If you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you will reap corruption. And know what it says in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. I think this is an important principle when we're talking about weeping what we sow. It says, For they sow to the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind the principle there is that not only do you reap what you sow but generally speaking you reap what you sow in greater quantities right you 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 harvest more than you plant that's why people plant right you plant one little corn of one little kernel of corn and a stock grows up and there's a couple of years on it and there's a couple thousand kernels of corn on that, right? You plant one little tomato seed and if it doesn't die in the spring, right, the tomato plant grows up and there's tomatoes all over it and each one of those tomatoes is filled with seeds. The principle there is not only do you reap what you sow, but you reap in greater quantities than you sow. What seeds... Are you sowing spiritually in your life right now? Are you sowing to the spirit or are you sowing to the flesh? Thirdly and lastly, in case you were wondering, God always judges sin. It might not be immediate. If you sin this morning, the hand of God probably isn't gonna fall on you in this afternoon. Right? There, there's a time period. But God does judge sin. Now listen, I want to make this, this clarification. We as believers, we as, as, as a part of the church, as the bride of Christ, as the children of God, right? we don't face God's judgment in the same way that unbelievers do. God doesn't judge his children in the same sense that he judges unbelievers. But the Lord certainly does discipline his children, doesn't he? And on the surface, sometimes God's judgment of unbelievers and his discipline of believers can look very similar, right? but they're different because God's judgment brings about damnation. God's judgment brings about destruction where God's discipline is intended to bring about repentance and to produce the fruits of righteousness in our lives. If you are an unbeliever this morning, take advantage of God's patience. Repent before that patience runs dry. Come to the Lord before your day of judgment. Turn from your sins. Repent and seek the face of God. If you're a believer and you're experiencing the discipline of the Lord, understand that you are being disciplined because the Lord loves you and he wants to see correction in your life. If you're being disciplined by God, Repent and embrace that hand of discipline and allow the Lord room to work in your life. Sometimes we hear the phrase, oh, so-and-so had a come-to-Jesus moment, right? You guys heard that expression, a come-to-Jesus moment, right? And outside of the church setting, it sort of means someone who comes to a, a sudden but often difficult realization about something. And I think that there may be some of us here this morning who need to have a come to Jesus moment about Jesus. Some of you might be realizing now that you're living in sin and that you're living on borrowed time. Maybe just now you've come to the realization that it's only the loving patience of God that's staying his hand of judgment on your life. And if you don't get it figured out soon, if you don't repent, if you don't turn from your sins and come to Jesus, as the author of Hebrews says, there remains nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Those are harsh words. There remains nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Those are harsh words, but they're designed to give you a soft heart. Understand this. God will judge sin, but judgment is not God's desire. It's not his best plan for you. He wants salvation for us. He wants peace. He wants joy. He wants to prosper us in the Lord. But first, we have to repent. We have to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for even these weird stories that we find in Judges but the great spiritual applications and the great spiritual truths we see in there. And Father, we pray that you would help us to take these spiritual truths and apply them to our lives, Lord. Help us to walk closely with you, Lord, and to receive discipline and and repent when it's needed. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.